Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz. And Chip. I am Chip Chantry. This has gone on long enough, this this thing that you do. I know, I know. It's I should just I think I think the joke's done. Like we should just <laughs> we should move it on. We put it to bed. Yes. We have we have a guest today, and uh, I'm excited because I've been listening to his music uh, for the last few days. Yeah. And um, he's got a very long history in rock and roll. So um, without further ado, let's welcome singer, songwriter, guitarist Robert Allen, a.k.a. Downtown Mystic, to the show. Hi, guys. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, all things considered, uh, 2022 is off to a rocking start. Uh, it's great. It's amazing, right? It's just one thrill after another. Are you? <laughs> are you out? Are you doing live shows right now? Are you in the midst? No, of no, no. I haven't done live uh, live shows in a, in a, a long time. Yeah. Um, and with the, the whole COVID thing, I can't even find anybody that wants to do a show. Right. Well, you know, and that's a, that's another thing too. I guess so we, at least with Ken and I, we're comedians. I, I've been doing less shows, uh, but it's, you know, we can just be ourselves and just do a, be a solo act and get up there, do our set and get out of there. But like, you have to be in the room with, with people. So that's, that's gotta be so much more difficult. Yeah. And then coordinating people's schedules and things like that. It's just a nightmare. So it's actually uh, in, in a one way COVID's a blessing because you don't have to think about that stuff. Uh, you, you just concentrate on the music and uh, yeah. promoting it. Yeah. Uh, do, now, do you work pretty well in in a vacuum? Like, I know there's some musicians and writers and comedians, whoever, who like this this past two years has been great for, uh, you know, just as far, you know, not great for, but just like to have that solitude and just to bang stuff out. And other people like I know for me, it's it's kind of hard to get motivated and get get writing. What, what, what's the last year or so looked like for you? Actually, it was a. Uh... It was a, there's a couple of strange things that happened uh, in with COVID, but for me, it's been just the opposite of what like you're saying about being in a vacuum. But for me, it's been just nonstop uh, because of uh, I also have uh, Shala Music, which is my uh, publishing, and it's also a record company, and um, so I've just been putting out catalog, putting out different uh things i got a i got this strange letter uh in the mail from outside my wife says one day she comes in she goes oh you got a letter from it says asbury park hotel and i'm going like i don't know but asbury park hotel and she opens it up and it's this uh letter saying oh is this robert allen uh, from uh, a group called the tupelos who played back in asbury in uh, the late 70s um and I'm like, I think I'm being punked because it's like, who remembers this? And he says, oh, we, I've talked to locals and they said that you put on one of the greatest shows, that rock and roll shows I've ever seen. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> this is this is crazy. Yeah. And the guy turns out, he says, I'm, I was in Asbury for like a month, a couple of months doing research on a book, which I cannot find. But the... Um, he says, I'm doing a, a, the Asbury Park music scene in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. And your, your your band came up and um, the guy is Nick Cohn. So he gives me his email. He 
flew back to London. Now, Nick Cohn is considered, when you look him up on Wikipedia, he's considered to be like the the dean of rock criticism, English rock criticism. I've heard that name before, yeah. He wrote this book called uh, A Wap Bop, A Who Wap, A Bop Bam Boom, which is like the first book of uh, in the in the 60s. He uh, friends with Townsend, was talking to him about Pinball Wizard. He comes to the States and he writes a short story for The New Yorker that becomes... The uh, and he ends up writing the script for a Saturday Night Fever. Oh, you're right, right. Yes, there's a documentary really? out about that. So was was this the rock critic who was the pinball fan that Pete Townsend puts that song yeah. into yeah. Tommy for? Pete yeah. Townsend wrote Pinball Wizard just because he knew that this critic loved pinball and he no. wanted. He knew Tommy was sort of an out there concept, and he thought if he included something about pinball, this guy would write them a favorable review. So now this guy is writing me a letter about the Tupelos in 1979 at a show we did at the Fast Lane, and I'm like, "No, this is not possible." So I email him and I said, "How how how do you know this?" And he yeah. says. I was talking to one of the owners of the fast lane and he mentions, I have your single. He showed me your single uh, with sweet little 16. We did a cover of Chuck Berry's mm -hmm. sweet little 16. And I was mm -hmm. like, Oh my God, that's it. Wow. Oh, that's it. Yeah. That's incredible. So because of that, he uh, now COVID hits and I'm thinking, you know, this guy was talking about you know my old stuff and all. And that's right after that, I quit the bay. That's what, actually when I met Gary talent, um, we actually played, uh, he recorded with us on a production deal. We did a show with him down at the live with, the uh, uh, the fast lane. And, um, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to put out my stuff. And I put out this thing called use records history, 1979 to mm -hmm. 1985. And it was all when I went solo. Wow. So, so that started. And then I just started putting out bands I had managed and, uh, you know, so like within the last little over a year, I've got like four or five albums out there just because of that letter. That really is what sparked it. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And now and tell me about the Tupelos. Like how, when, when exactly was that? Like how long of a stretch was that? And Well, the Tupelos were, we, um, uh, I had been in college uh, with a, a friend and we were together for like 10 years. So uh, in 75, we started, uh, we had, uh, he, he went to school with a bass player that became our bass player and his cousin managed Patty Smith. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, wow. We had just gotten signed playing yeah. this place called CBGB's. So um that's really where we start and then uh we met a band from a couple of guys that when we were in college we did our first recording session and we're, we're sitting and we're playing in uh one weekend uh, at cb's and at cb's you always had to if you were the first band on saturday night sunday night you were the last band on but nobody could move their equipment until the final band was off so you had to sit around for two nights and this band called the Roxburghs came on and I'm looking at four guys in black suits. This is 1976 and with short hair. And it's like, we're sitting around. I liked them. I liked them immediately because it was kind of like a Beatle-ish type of thing. I hadn't heard anything like that yeah. uh, in like 10 years. And all of a sudden it's like, we're sitting around for two days and I was like, God, this, where does that guitar player look familiar to me? I, he turned out to be a guitar player that played on our session. 
back in 1972. Okay. So long story short, the Roxburghs are signed to uh, Dick James Music, who was the Beatles publisher, and he started his record company by signing Elton John. You know, it goes on and on. It's just crazy. And they decided that they had the Roxburghs. We signed with their production company, and they wanted an American rock and roll band that was kind of because rockabilly was coming back with mm-hmm. New Wave. Yeah. Uh, and they wanted us. That's where they gave us the name of Tupelo's because that's where Elvis was born. They wanted this American kind of rock and roll sound yeah it's that's a, where the name it's a came great from. band name yeah so we're playing um it's like we come to tupelo's in like 77 uh and then we started getting into the city because it was like that was the only place where we'd be discovered and i there were places like uh uh at that time the big uh there was a big place right down the street uh for, on columbus uh, right from where lennon was shot called tracks and the guy that owned tracks had a little bar on the upper east side on 76th street called jp's his name was jimmy Poulos, and that was right up the block from um catch a rising star mm-hmm. next block like five doors up so this is like 1979 very uh fertile period new wave is coming and disco has died New Wave is coming in. And um, that single that Nick Cohen mentioned, we had pressed the single for a Sweet Little 16 and a, a song on the other side was mine called Please Please Be There. And uh, I thought, you know, the one reason for playing JP's was it was a very music industry hang. Um, I, you know, Mick Jagger, Billy Joel, I mean, you name it, guys, you know, and executives would hang out there. So we were playing one weekend and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take the, the the 45 and just put it on the tables and um, just see what happens. Mm-hmm. Kind of like fishing. You know? it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, at the end of the night, uh, a waitress comes up to me and she goes, um, can I have a single for my boyfriend? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, I, I you know, not even thinking. And then and like, if just as I gave it to her, I was like, Oh, by the way, who's your boyfriend? And she goes, Oh, Gary talent. And I went <laughs> from the East street band. She goes, yeah. <laughs> and, um, the next time we played there, she came and she said, uh, Gary really likes the record. He wants to meet you. That's great. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. you're and you're still and he's still playing with you to this. He day. was recording. He was recording the river at the time. He came. He came to my house to jam one night, uh, and he he had Clarence's car, and he says, "Oh, listen to this." And they had, and he plays me. They had just recorded "Cherry Darling," mm-hmm. which is on the river. So, and in Springsteen, you know, at that time was like nobody had seen him for a number of years, but he was like constantly writing songs and recording and he was going all about know, patty smith was cutting this, one of his tracks and the pointer sisters i mean it was uh it was a pretty fertile time out there and you're you're from you're from jersey originally right yeah i've been uh maplewood uh i went to high school with max weinberg he's a year older yeah and okay. I, I see so you you sort of uh bruce's rhythm section on, yep. on a lot of your recordings, because Max plays for you also. Max and Gary, Gary brought in Max to uh, do uh, some tracks when we were. Uh, Gary actually had just bought into the uh, 
the place I'm going to, uh, Showplace, Shorefire, rather, mm-hmm. in uh, Long Branch. Uh, so he said, yeah, let's, he wanted to be an engineer because he had come down to a, uh, um, we got a production deal out of playing uh, JPs. And um, I said, we called them one day. There, there used to be a uh, store, you know, a, a guitar trader in uh, Red Bank. It was a big uh, guitar store. And um, we were there one day and we called. They said, listen, this is kind of like, I don't know, January, February of 80. And I said, listen, we, we, were, we were trying to get a production deal. If we get the production deal, we're going to get rid of our bass player. Would you come and uh, play bass for us? And he said, yeah. And uh, the the rhythm guitar player just bought a 1952 broadcast before they were even called telecasters. And he says, but I got to see that guitar come on over. And he lived in Seabright. So, um, that really, that really started, uh, our relationship. Mm-hmm. And did you ever did, so you, you started in New York, but were you, were you also part of the Jersey shore? Were, were you bouncing back and forth? I know you said no. You, you know no. The Jersey, the Jersey Shore back then. You know, back in the the seventies, particularly the the late seventies, probably early eighties. Jersey was the uh, cover band capital of the world. Right. I mean, you, if you had a top notch cover band, you could play seven nights a week in at, in all the top clubs in Jersey. So they were very. Matter of fact, I don't know of any uh, original clubs outside down in Asbury, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the Fast Lane. And I don't even think um, Stone Pony was all that happening at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Philly's Philly's the same way, too. Like my, my brother was in a band for years. He was in a, a uh, original band and they were great. And like there was such a great talent, at least, you know, at least I thought a great talent, you know, pool of bands and musicians in Philly. This is like the early late 90s, early 2000s. And but Philly, it's just like if you weren't a cover band, nobody nobody wanted to hear from you. Like it's it's crazy how much talent talent there is. Now looking looking back at that time, like you know we we you know you see CBGBs, you think new wave, you think punk, you know all that stuff. Were you were you really thinking at the time like I this is what I want to do to try or like this is what we want to do to try to get noticed and like this is our thing? Or are you just writing music and it's coming coming out this way? Or did you have a specific like focus like this is the type of band I want to have? We. We had in college, we had um, been, you know, the the early 70s. It's really singer songwriter. It's James Taylor, Crosby, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young are like the Beatles, the American Beatles at that point. Sure. So it was all uh, we had an acoustic band and all in in college. uh, I I know the press release says about Jim Croce. We we did a show opening for Jim Croce, Bonnie Raitt and John Prine. Oh, wow. um, that, oh, that that's was all on the same uh, bill. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wait, can you say yeah. that one more time? What was that lineup? Say that again. It was Jim Croce. Yeah. It was supposed to be Jim Croce, Bonnie Raitt. The headliner was John Prine. He had just put out his first album. Wow. And Jim Croce's blowing up. He's already on uh, Bad Bad Leroy Brown, which was his second single. I mean, and his guitar. Yeah. I went to Glassboro okay. State, which is now Rowan. And, um, his it's a weird story with him because Jim Croce's guitar player was Maury Mulehausen, who went to Glassboro. He was from Glassboro. And actually, Maury got a deal with Capital and brought in Jim as his side man. 
Oh, and then like it flipped within a year or so. Uh, he got signed, um, uh, and Croce became the guy, and he he brings Maury in to be his side man. Okay, wow. And 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 Croce blows up. Yeah. Right. He just blows up huge. And so my uh, my roommate was booking the shows at the school and he's got Jim Croce opening for Bonnie Pride and John uh, Bonnie Ray and John Prine. And nobody had heard of John Prine. Bonnie Ray had just put out her second album. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm saying, look, Jim Croce is bigger than both of these guys. You, you can't let him open the show. I said, you know what? Let us open the show. Right. <laughs> because we were a big band on campus and I knew this was a sellout. Plus WYSP, the radio station in Philadelphia, yeah. because of Croce, they're going to be uh, doing a, a live radio broadcast. So I was like, no, nah, we got to open the show. And we yeah. did. Uh, and it was amazing. And uh, Jim Croce was uh, was a sweetheart. He gave me a tip about uh, I, we had to be we had mics on our guitars. And I said, I'm, I'm watching you and you're after the show. And I said, uh, you don't have a mic on your guitar. How's that possible? He goes, we got this little thing. They just came out to call Barkus Berry pickups. You put it on your bridge. And um, because of that, I got three Barkus Berries the next weekend up in New York at Manny's. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, he yeah. was just so, and I mean, just grow, when I was a little kid, I mean, that's all that was like that was all that was around. I feel like it was just Jim. I knew every Jim Croce song by the time I was four years old. You know, it was just like everywhere. Uh, it, but like, it, I mean, it was such a short run for him. Obviously, you know, unfortunately. He, and and that's like December seventy two, almost a year to the day later, he dies in the plane crash. Yeah. But he, but in that thought, in seventy three, he was like the biggest guy you could think of. Yeah. In music, he but had sweet, like but four. Years. He said, yeah, yeah. He had four hit songs and just was, you know, was on his way. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. That sounds like a crazy lineup. And then and then, you know, John Prine and Bonnie Raitt both go on. John Prine, and John Prine was a he was a a, a mailman in Chicago writing <laughs> songs uh, in spare time. And he gets this deal um, and everybody's, you know, n- just that you know his first album is considered to be actually his best album uh but that's the one that uh there's a hole in daddy's arm and all i mean all these classics angel from montgomery i mean this um and he was kind of bemused all the while he was just sitting backstage drinking beer and he was just kind of bemused that it's like because the body rate was uh actually probably if crochet didn't have the hit song she would have been the biggest yeah star at the time because she was all over college campuses. Right. Yeah. So how, how old were you when you when you start performing live? When you make a good That's like um uh, like 19, 18, 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did did you ever think in a million years that you would still be doing it? You know, 50 because back then I feel like people didn't it, you. It, there were no musicians for life like you didn't no, know. Yeah, that. it was, you know, our, from the point of graduating high school, I went to college specifically to start a band. Yeah. And I got that in the first year and we became very popular on campus and, you know, started touring around other college campuses. Uh, and then when we graduated, now it's going on 74, 75 and music, start, you know, is really changing as far as um, I can remember. And this is really funny. So we get a uh, our first production deal was uh, 
the guitar player's girlfriend babysat for a guy who worked for Don Kirshner. And he was actually credited on the uh, first Monkees album. And so we go to Long Island to do this, uh, our first recording. And on the way there, the big song on the radio was by uh, American Pie by Don McClain. Mm -hmm. Again, folky, right? Coming home, world premiere, this song by Led Zeppelin just were like, and, and every time it would come on the radio after that, you would stop and just go, oh, my God. And it was Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> hearing that for the first time it's 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 you know all these years later to go like oh my god i can't stand that song anymore but at the time yes. when it first hit there was nothing like it you just everybody was just like have you heard zeppelin's new song yeah, yeah mind-blowing yeah and and what were you listening like growing up what were you listening to what were your influences oh when, i was when huge beatles yeah. yeah huge beatles and stuff all the, all that stuff in the 60s like everybody else when the beatles hit it was all over yeah yeah were there any bands? Like, I always love to hear. Like, do you remember any other bands that weren't quite as big, whether it's British Invasion or that type of thing, that you were into or that you really liked that sort of maybe got overshadowed by the Beatles? Well, you know, um, one of them was the Searchers, uh, and the other one was probably the Hollies. Yeah. Um, which were both, uh, I mean, the Searchers did have needles and pins, which, by the way, is written by Sonny Bono, of all people. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. I always thought yeah. it was. Uh, I thought the bird, I thought the birds were the first ones that did that. No, uh, needles and pins by, uh, the searchers was, oh, was wow. a hit and, uh, Sonny Bono. Yeah. Of all the guys you, you think would have written a song like that. Um, but, uh, and then there were the Hollies, which, um, reading Graham Nash's, uh, book, I didn't realize how big they were. They were like a top 10 band, but they were always doing like cover songs. Mm -hmm. But you would hear, look through any window, bus stop. And, you know, for us, it was, it, you were listening on a transistor radio. It was all yeah. AM radio. There, you, you know, FM radio doesn't come in until like the 67, 68. It, it's mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, to, I mean, I've told people like, I can actually remember a time when there was no such, there wasn't such a thing called rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a bizarre thing. I can remember a time when there was no such thing called FM radio. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. And then and then when rock and roll hits, when the Beatles hit, and then the British invasion, it's it's almost like you almost have to feel like a kid in a candy shop where there's something new coming out every week. Oh. You know, that really is the golden age of, of music. I mean, you, you can talk about the 70s and 80s if you want, but I mean, the 60s were just, I can't imagine the, uh, I mean, just look what it took for the Beatles to break into. I mean, they had She Loves You. They had those songs in 63. They were huge over in Britain and all, mm -hmm. and they couldn't get arrested. Uh, by their own, their own Capitol Records wouldn't even put out their own records. Yeah. George Morton has to go to VJ, these little indie uh, labels to get them out. When you look back on how incredibly stupid some of these gatekeepers are and you just realize that it's all luck, like they have... Um, there, there's a great documentary on the first five years of David Bowie's career. And uh, it's called the it's called Finding Fame. And it's as he's trying to break through. It's like pre space oddity. And they show 
uh, he'd submitted something to a record company and some executive took the time to write him a letter front and back of <laughs> how untalented he was and how unremarkable his voice is and pleading with David Bowie to please find a new line of work because you're never going to make it in the music industry. Yeah, he's one of those guys that when you dig into it, he was around a long time before Space mm-hmm. Oddity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you, nobody really knows that because again, you know, these guys would just pop out of the, you know, they popped out of the radio and you were like, Oh my God, what's this? Mm-hmm. That's how you, you know, as a kid back then, that's how you discovered new music. Yeah. What, what did you, I, I don't know, like how well-versed you are or whatever, but FM radio becomes a thing. Does that, does the, is that a real game changer for you or f- for just the way people's music were like, y- y- you know, yeah, because you know, yeah. one of the problems with FM radio is that you couldn't get it. And we had actually one radio in the house that had an FM band, mm-hmm. never used it. So that was luckily we had the FM band and I could get in. And and actually one of the first guys on FM radio was Murray Decay. Yeah. Yeah. Of all people. Right. Uh, and you started hearing uh, it's a game changer for music because all of a sudden um, AM radio becomes top 40 fair. You know, it's all the, the, the garbage and, you know, the stuff that people put out to, to have hit records. Right. Whereas all of a sudden, you know, in 67, all oh, you hear something like Strawberry Fields. Uh, for the first time over the radio, and you're like, "Oh my God, this is it's not the Beatles anymore." It's like, right. right? Oh yeah, it's a different. That's a different world. And then you had, you know, you had guys, you know, you had the um, uh, one of the became a classic was like you, you for the first time you heard Bluebird by Buffalo Springfield, mm-hmm. which uh, has that beautiful uh, stills acoustic probably the, still the best acoustic solo ever done on on record uh so you're hearing songs that are like six seven eight minutes like right seven, yeah which they two and a half minute songs on am radio which they yeah. said could never be done did that, then when you, you would that- go all the cars back then had only am radios and you had to listen to am radio in the car and then you realize how bad it was <laughs> compared to <laughs> fm that really was where you got the difference Oh, that's that's great. And I'm assuming that did that inspire you to like your your songwriting and your to to take on that? Yeah, because, well, at the time I'm I'm going through all these changes. I'm I'm just really um, really learning and, and developing. You know, you'd hear something and you just go like, oh, my God, I'd love to write something like that. You know, you try to emulate it and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you went through all these different phases uh, so that by the time I got to college, yeah, you know, Crozier Stills, Nash, uh, Buffalo Springfield, the birds, they were all kind of in the back pocket and uh, kind of at the forefront at the, at that time. And when, um, when did you start playing music? Were you did you start really young or, di- or did you come to it late, later on? No, I, I probably started like around 65 uh, and uh, with the first band we had, you know, they had to talk about garage bands in Jersey. We had. Uh, cellar bands everybody started in a, somebody's basement oh, yeah. and uh if you got out of the basement after two or three months you were lucky because most of them never got past that stage you're like oh the drummer hates me oh no, the guitar player is a jerk you know it's like <laughs> <laughs> all these kind of things so half of them never saw the light 
but I think the first time I played at a at a dance or something was around. Yeah, I think it was sixty five or sixty six, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh, that's, so I'm curious. So going back to like the music you grow up on. So you're you're growing up. You're it's the '60s. It's revolutionary. You've got the Beatles, the Stones, the Kings, all of those, all that protest music coming out. And then you get to CBGBs. And um, so who who were the bands? Who were the bands that were popular during your time at CBGBs? Well, don't forget at CB uh, at CBs or in general. Well, in, well at at CBs, like who were who well, were at you CBs? Saying? You know, there's a weird thing. We we um, uh, Jane um, Jane County. No, 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 Jane. I'm thinking of uh, Patty Smith's manager had booked us into oh. CBs, so we did a couple of uh, uh, weeks with a, uh, he was an off-Broadway actor. And I say, I said this uh, on an interview recently, I said, I think this guy's probably the biggest star that came out of CBGB's and, and nobody knows him. He, he was named, his name is David Patrick Kelly. Mm -hmm. And if you um, Google him, you'll see that probably in the eighties, as far as a musician, no, he had a band called, it was David Patrick Kelly and Togvoy. And he's very uh, wearing these uh, white kind of, Togeish uh, outfits, very David Bowie-ish. Mm -hmm. um, but he became uh, like the, the the crazed terrorist in every Stallone, Schwarzenegger. Uh, oh, if you so see his face, you'll know him immediately. Go, oh, my God, he was he was the, the brother that gets stoned on uh, Twin Peaks and gets lost in the forest. Um, just but David Patrick Kelly, if you Google his name, he's he, he he was in every movie, I think. Oh, he's the guy from the Warriors, I think. Yeah, he, he like always played it. He was like a jerk. He was like always played. Yeah, and, he, and he, I, he's so he's so great at that that role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, uh, you know, he's going to blow up the bridge or something. You know, he's always yeah. the, the crazed terrorist or something. He was only like five, five. I mean, but uh, yeah, you yeah, perfect uh, had the face for it. So. Uh, we started with him, and then I think it was June or July of '75. It be, it was called the Summer of Seabees, and Seabees um, really got put on the map then because uh, every night, all through the summer, there were going to be shows with every band imaginable. So the bands that started to uh, kind of separate themselves as far as uh, uh, like back to your question, Blondie, uh, definitely the Ramones. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, the Talking Heads. I didn't see Talking Heads, but um, they were around at the time too. Uh, and it really, from that summer of uh, CBs, uh, they, re uh, I think it was Sire released a live album with some of the bands from there. And that's how the Ramones and Blondie and uh, Talking Heads all got signed. Yeah. Did you, would you, would you watch the Ramones and think like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is a timeless band that everybody's no. going to be listening to? No, because to at the time, 50 years. you know, the rock critics were, were trying to, force feed uh punk mm -hmm. as a legitimate um art form you know in music and in 1975 it was the farthest thing from popular right mm -hmm. i mean they and they actually never could sell it they actually had to call it new wave yeah 
to kind of get it through the, the side door. But back then it was like, no, I mean, you heard this. It, it, it was it was like an assault on your senses. It was like, what is this? I know, but it's so funny because if you listen to it now. Oh, yeah. It's just sped up rock and roll. Like there's nothing. There was no. nothing dangerous about them. It was just kids in leather jackets playing yeah. faster rock. And I would constantly run into uh, Tommy Ramone, the drummer for them, because he he was always hanging out at CDs. Yeah. Uh, and we were a weird band because uh, um, Patty's manager took our demo to uh, Arista and came back. And she says, you know, I played it for the A&R guys and they said it was the most original thing they've heard. It was the most original thing to come down the pike in the last five years. They have no idea what to do with it. Ah. So. You know, yeah, such a such a a bittersweet thing to hear. Yeah, it was. It was. And, you know, when I look back at what we would do, we were we were trying to make that. Trying to evolve from a, you know, a a folk folky Mm -hmm. to a a rock, rock and roll band. And the songs were we were writing and we're just trying to find. So there were these songs with a lot of harmonies and we had a very country uh, rock kind of aspect to us. Um, and I remember Tommy Ramon coming up to me and goes, hey, man, I really dig what you guys are doing with those voices. Uh, the harmonies sound great. Yeah. And, you know, it was like coming from him, you just like. <laughs> it was bizarre. Oh, yeah. We did, and and uh, you talk about rockabilly. One of the, the lead singer from a group called the Tough Darts uh, would become the forefront of rockabilly, which was uh, the lead singer was um, Robert Gordon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. wow. That's, but that's got to be so interesting to like, to, to, and we kind of do this with comedy, but I mean, we are who we are, but it's, it's gotta be weird when you're writing, like what, especially back then when you're writing stuff or what's your, your goal? Are you, are you writing a hit song or like, you know, attempting to write a hit song or are you trying, trying to be more artistic about it? Like what, what is the, the business end of like writing something where it's like mass appeal? Yeah. I I think you're, I, I think there's, I, I, I don't know about hit songs uh, in the mid seventies because I think don't forget in the nineteen seventy five Born to Run comes out yeah right and I remember that record coming out and like we were, it was like yeah it's okay you know and yeah. then I remember in nineteen eighty because Gary was going to be recording with us I said you know I, I buy some of Bruce's albums to check out his bass playing and in 1980 when i heard born to run i went oh my god this thing was like five years ahead of its time because you know 1975 is zeppelin jethro tull you know bowie's coming on um and then all of a sudden you've got this you know these minor players coming up like billy joel and bruce springsteen and and uh fleetwood mac gets uh buckingham and nicks in it and they they took off big time uh in 75 that first record uh and then um uh when new wave comes in in like the late 70s early 80s rock and roll is back in force and when you hear born to run in 1980 as opposed to 1975 it was like a totally different record to me yeah wow because yeah. It, it totally made sense in 1980 it was right. like right where yeah. music was it's, it's the it's like literally the definition of being ahead of its time oh yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. 
Do you ever try and like you ever sit Gary and Max down? Like, uh, all right, I I feel like this dude's bubbles about to burst. Like, you ever try and poach them and be like, why don't you just come join my band already? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, they were way beyond. Uh, you you know when when you talk about Springsteen and the E Street Band in New Jersey, mm-hmm. it's you know they're they're. They walk on water. I mean, <laughs> so forget it. <laughs> Here, here's something I, I vote. I, I, I'm always trying to get. A, we did a story. One of our first uh, episodes that we did, we found this like very obscure story. Ken found this this documentary. Uh, were you aware of? Because you were talking about Bowie and all. Uh, aware of uh, the artist Joe Bryath in the '70s? Is that a name that rings a bell at all? No. Joe Bryath. No, it's it's. No. So I, I'm always I'm always fascinated to hear if anybody from like from being in New York at that time he he had this like huge push for a record it was everywhere and then just disappeared and uh, I'm I'm always interested to see if so so far the only person we found that heard of him is the fellow that directed his documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's probably a lot of guys like that, though. Yeah. Are there are there any that you can remember seeing where you were like, this band is going to be huge? Maybe they were great live, had a following, and it just never seemed to happen, or they couldn't. Well, the the Roxburghs, this band I was telling you about in '76 that we saw, um, they became one of the first bands ever signed with a videotape. Oh, because, wow. oh wow! Because their uh, production company was called Mediatrope. They were filmmakers, and and they uh, they knew the guys from Kiss, and the guys from Kiss told them uh, when they saw with Casablanca, they said, "You know what? You should get a rock band to make you money to fund your pictures." Mm-hmm. And so uh, they had a bunch of friends that formed this band, the Rock Spurs. Um, and you got to remember, 1976. It's like four guys in black suits short hair with the ties i mean it's like uh crazy yeah uh when you see that in a place like cbgb's and you're like wow um but musically these guys were right on that cusp when uh their record supposed to there they had a single called jackie run that was supposed to come out i think it's january 77 and this is just before elvis costello and the police and all these people come over but um, their manager had been over in europe and he had seen what the fashions were going to be so when he comes into uh, new york he he wants he tells the tailors to to take the collars off the shirts and the, the tailors are like, what are you out of your mind? And he goes, no, 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 trust me on this. Just take the collars off the shirts. Um, and he says, says short hair. He goes, forget short. Cause I had hair down on my uh, shoulders and they were going to cut it off. Uh, and when they cut it off, I, I went like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. This is, this is the look. He goes, it's going to get crazy. People are going to go bald. Uh, Patty Stritz's manager was bald. This is, you know, 1975, I'm looking at a, a bald woman and she did, did it deliberately. She wasn't sick. It was yeah. like, yeah. what? Yeah. Your head would explode seeing these people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Is there any band that you um, can't believe made it as big as they did? Where you were like, I just don't get what the fuss is. Um, my offhand, I can't think. I'm just, uh, we've been talking about CB, so I'm thinking about the bands there. Um, you know, uh, a lot, what, what people may not know, I'm probably Ramon fans do, but, uh, they went over to London mm-hmm. 
and they go over to England in 76. And that's where punk, the the whole sex pistol thing, and all, all of the, the punks in, in England saw the Ramones and went like, yeah, this is it. Mm-hmm. So that that's really where the Ramones um, maybe not get credit uh, as much as they deserve. But they were really one of the, the ones that uh, started the whole because everybody comes when when the Sex Pistols come over. That's when everybody thinks punk starts. But it was already two years old yeah. here. Yeah, it was. Wasn't it like the Pistols manager came over here yeah. and. and uh brought some of the music back but just changed the way it looked yeah i mean you know for the ramones they never you know talk about a group that never really caught on they, they don't really ever quite catch on here but they were huge over yeah in europe very influential bands over there yeah well same with the same with the new york dolls i mean jimmy hendrix right. jimmy hendrix had to go to london to to get a you know to get a fan base and and get appreciation yeah. before he made it back here which is crazy when you think of um like all these great bands right in our own backyard and and they can't do anything well, here well the thing i found from europe is that they tend to really appreciate the artist more than we do mm-hmm. they get they look at it from an artistic point of view and because they, they have a thing called culture over there. <laughs> you know, you, 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 walk in London and you're looking at these buildings and you're going like, Oh my God, you know, you, you come to back to Jersey and it's like, you know, we're a couple hundred years old. They're thousands of years old. Mm-hmm. So they had, there's, you know, there's just like this built in thing about artistry and all that. Uh, they, they told me I was reading reviews. I, I had put out an album, uh, standing still that uh, in got a deal in Germany and um, I'm reading these things and I was like, it's bringing back stuff to me. Like, uh, Oh my God, I forgot about it. they're comparing me some of my stuff to rock pile. And it was like, ah, that's right. I saw rock pile at uh, fast lane in 81. And it was like, that's what I want to do. That's the band I want. Yeah. Oh, and so a lot of what downtown mystic is based on what rock pile was doing. Yeah. Yeah, so Downtown Mystic to me, it sounds like, um, it sounds, it's strange. It sounds uh, very familiar, but also very modern at the same time. Like, oh, cool. almost like, almost like it, it, it's, I don't, it, it's almost like new wave and just pub rock, but it sounds like it had to be made now. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, you know what? I would, I'm just writing that in a blog post that I'm going to have in a few days where it's like I get compared to guys like Tom Petty, you know, at, all the time. And even some stations will say, oh, it's classic rock. And it's like classic rock. What are you talking? It's like an oxymoron. Yeah. Uh, but if you take like you say, if you take my music and you go back to the 50s, the 60s, yeah, no. 80s, like you said, there's there's a point, there's some songs that come from that time period that would fit the early 80s. But forget the 90s. This is the only time period that you could hear these songs and go, oh, yeah, that is now. Yeah. Because I don't really sound like anybody else. Right. Which is probably, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that's what you're aiming for, right? 
Well, again, you know, uh, Leon Russell said, uh, you know, back in the 60s, uh, it was an insult if somebody said, oh, you sound like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the idea was to be your own, to be your own thing, to be yeah. original, try to I be mean, original. But, but it's hard not to, you know, it's hard not to, I would imagine, it's hard not to have all of these influences inside you and all this stuff that you love and all this stuff that you grew up on and not have it regurgitated in, in some fashion where where someone can hear somebody's influence in what you do. I have a weird style in the sense that like I said, I don't sound like anybody else. And when I try, when I think I'm writing another somebody other song, it turns out to not sound like anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it's a weird thing. Um, do you try to uh, do that a decent amount? Like, do you say like, I'm going to try to write X, Y, Z song? No, as, no, as, I never not, do. Not, as, not to rip something off, but as yeah, a no, no, no. Yeah. I um, at one point in time, yeah, um, particularly in the '80s and all, yeah, I would say without a doubt. But um, it's weird. It's like I'll, I'll, I'll come up with something. I'll say to my wife, does this sound like so-and-so? And so it's like, I, that's all I hear. And she'll go like, no, I don't hear that. And then I'll go back and listen to the song. And it's like, no, I don't sound anything like that. But that's what was in my head. Right, right. I was reading on uh, I, I was reading in your bio that your new album and forgive me if I got this wrong, but I think your new album was mixed with Keith Richards personal engineer. Right. So part of the, the, the new album is called 21st Century Rock and Roll. And um, part of putting the record out is also to honor my engineer, uh, Ben Elliott, who owned and operated the show place, which. I played with on a bill with uh, Elliot Murphy one time and with Robert Gordon one time because Showplace actually was a um, club. And then in the early 90s, they took the club and, and broke it in half, kept the bar. It became a, a go-go bar. And on the other side of the wall, Ben started his studio, who was mm-hmm. called Showplace Studios. Um, and... Um, He's just I worked with him for 20 years. So like this is like the end of an era for me putting out this record because he he recorded all the songs. Everything I ever did was recorded there and mixed by Ben. And he was a master. Uh, He's the guy that I credit for making me a recording artist. And it was in the early 2000s that he was doing a record for uh, Hubert Sumlin, who Mm -hmm. was the uh, guitar player for Howlin' Wolf. And it became kind of like a a tribute album because Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, LeVon Helm all came to Jersey, to Dover, New Jersey, to record at the showplace for this thing. Keith shows up like three. He's been he's been on a bender for three days. He's up, you know, and, and in those days, Keith's idea of a, a drink was to take like a, a, a beer mug, fill it up with vodka and at the very top, pour orange soda on it to give it color. <laughs> and uh, they must have hit it off because he hires Ben to be his personal engineer at his home studio up in Stanford, Connecticut. 
And, uh, you know, the whole thing about uh, the, the 21st century rock and roll, rock and roll really is about, you talk about songs, but it really is about sounds. And for me, I, I, I'm strictly, all my, my, my songs are strictly guitars. Very, uh, it, it takes a certain kind of song for me to put a piano mm-hmm. or something like that on it. Uh, and that's the way Keith Richards is. And the thing we have in common is Ben Elliott and Ben Elliott new sound. And, you know, if you want to make a great record, it has to sound great. Mm-hmm. And part of sounding great is knowing how to actually get those sounds. And that was Ben's uh, forte. So he unfortunately he passed away last year. Uh, no, uh, April 2020. And, uh, you know, and, and with him, the, the show place got sold. And uh, wow. it's just like a lot of people uh, really miss that guy. I, I'm sure you learned a lot from him, but as a musician, and like I'm a huge music fan, but like I, I can listen again. I could listen to all my songs probably through an AM radio, just because like I'm not like, like an audiophile. Like I don't right. get the high tech and like oh this sound or that. So like I love melody. I love the way you know songs are written. I'm such a music fan, but like I don't understand the tech technicality behind it. Is that something that you really got into over the years? Is that something you're aware of and that you really focus on, or do you just kind of? You write the song, you perform the song, and you let guys like Ben and those other people deal with deal with the the sound. Uh, well, I always let the, the the engineers deal with the sound, but uh, the sound is like really important to um, what I do. Mm-hmm. And so, when I started Downtown Mystic, I kind of evolved from just being a you know singer songwriter to this kind of producer songwriter mm-hmm. where. I was thinking if I was going to do a song, I was thinking about how it was going to sound in the studio. Yeah. And and whether or not I would it was worth doing. Yeah. And that's how I judged it. So my uh, my my writing process and all became very sound oriented, if that makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. Because like you're saying, you know, it's like listening to, you know, most people listen to stuff on their computers. Yeah, it's coming out of these little speakers, you know, and we're in studios trying to get the, you know, the the, the great sound and all and trying to get that, you know, reproduced mm-hmm. uh, for people to hear uh, because it, it really does make a difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the end. And I get it because most people, you know, you, you just most people, the way they hear it are like what you're talking about and they just hear the song. Mm hmm. Yeah. They, they don't they don't you know so so everything that we spend hours on trying to put on a song harmonies and guitars and all that it's like you know if the song isn't happening nobody's going to be listening in the first place right yeah that, that's something i wish i was always smarter because i i feel like i know music a lot and I, I love it but like i have a friend who is is a recording he, he's an engineer was an engineer for years he went to full sale and you know the whole thing and he uh like he's so focused on all these little things that like he once he brings it to my attention i'm like oh my god yeah that's right and it's just i wish i had that ability now when you're writing songs and you're producing art you said you're kind of thinking about the sound in the studio are you is it two different ways of thinking about it, like how it's going to come out on the album, how it's going to come out in the studio, and then how you're going to perform it live. Do you, do you think two ways or is it just sort of focus on the I, studio I just, and live comes out? I just, yeah. I just think about the studio. I just yeah. think I, I actually hear it in my head. I can actually hear the recording in my head and I kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm able to go into the studio then and go in, I don't know. This has to. This I need this. I need. I need more of that because 
I'm hearing, I'm hearing the mix and everything. Yeah, um, yeah. that's great. Before, I'm, before I'm even done. So, what's more satisfying for satisfying for you? Um, knocking something out in the studio where everything that was in your head comes out the way that you heard it, or uh, live performance. What's what's yeah, more? They're, they're, they're totally different mediums. For me, it's all about the studio because yeah. that's the creative process. And um, it's it's hard to I tell people I, I try to make records and they're like, well, you record your songs. It's like, yeah, yeah it's you're, two different things. Right. Like there's a, a record and a recording. <laughs> it's so I, I can't even explain it. It's like, you know, it's in the moment. Um, and part of uh, what Downtown Mystic uh, taking the name was to the idea of being able to create magic um, through the music, to, to, to create these moments that uh, when you hear them back, it's like, I, I can't do that again. Yeah. You know, it's just something clicks, something happens in the performance and with the other guys or in the mix, uh, something gets that you can't, uh, you know. Uh, Gary used to tell me that uh, Bruce, uh, uh, when he would re when they would re record together, he always sang live because that's what his his idol was Elvis, and Elvis always sang with the band in the studio. Of course, at the time they only had two tracks, so he had to sing right. with the band in the studio. <laughs> right. But so uh, Gary says, "Well, Bruce will sing live in the studio, and then you know, and then the recording goes on, and particularly in their, those the late seventies, early eighties, they were just recording and recording and recording to get ideas, uh, and they would be recording, and and he goes, now he has to listen to them, and there's mistakes on there, and after a while, he gets used to the mistakes, and now you got to learn the mistake that you made because he can't hear it any other way, yeah." <laughs> that's and wild. that's recording yeah those yeah. are the things that happen that i you know when it happens you totally understand it. it's like oh my god it's, those are like the the little gifts you get because yeah. you could not have planned it any other way yeah oh wow that's now, really what, funny what's what are you what are you looking forward to in 2022 what's the what's the plan and i that's such a loaded question because i don't think anybody really knows but what what's the what's the hope well, in 2022, I, I'm, I'm, I'm releasing this record the day before my 70th birthday uh, to make a statement on the current state of rock and roll. Because really, you're talking about Keith Richards, you know, the Stones are the only thing out there that when you talk about rock and roll in 2022, what are we talking about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, if it was 20 years ago, you'd say, oh, yeah, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joe, those are the, the markers for you. That's where the lines are. But today, who it's all, uh, you know, um, uh, hip hop rules, popular music. So uh, rock bands, uh, kids getting together uh, to play. I mean, uh, it, there may be a, a point in time where that becomes obsolete. Yeah, it's, I said rock's becoming like jazz now. It's almost like a, yeah. like a niche. And, yeah, and so back to your question about what I see is like, yeah. I did a, uh, I just put out a, the release before this in September was called the Downtown Demos. And, and it's been a surprise kind of hit for me because um, there was no drums. It was all beats that I, mm -hmm. I had started with uh, about five, six years ago with somebody. And um, then I took it home and I was putting my own 
little things on my home recordings. And I thought because it was a demo, it wasn't, you know, the studio. I thought, ah, no. but then uh, we moved uh, this past year. And as I'm putting back my computer and I'm listening to stuff uh, with in my iTunes and I like, wow, I haven't heard that. That's actually sounds pretty cool. And I realized that I couldn't, I would never be able to duplicate those tracks again. So I put them out. There was six tracks, put them out, called the downtown demos with the idea being that I'm going to show Usually it's the other way. Somebody puts out an album, it becomes popular. Then they'll go back and give bonus tracks of demos and all. I'm doing the demos first and saying, okay, I'm going to be going into the studio and doing these songs. These are the demos for what you're going to hear a year from now or two mm -hmm. years from now. Oh, that's um, an interesting and one. then in the middle, I thought, you know what? I want to make a, my rock and roll statement like Born to Run was uh, Springsteen's statement of, of his rock and roll. Oh, Damn the Torpedoes was Tom Petty's mm -hmm. rock and roll statement. Uh, Exile on Main Street was the Stones. You know, I mean, they were all famous by at that time. But this is my kind of comment my statement to where i see rock and roll today and it's like hey anybody thinks they can do as good or better go be my guest yeah lay down the gauntlet i like it oh that's great right. that's well great. that's great i can't wait to hear it so it's it's january 21st that's it and well where can everyone find it just at any stream stream everywhere it's it's only going to be digital so mm -hmm. it so it'll be amazon i mean you can get amazon and apple already have yep. pre-ordering uh you can hear it on uh, there's this radio digital radio platform called um airplay direct and uh our my press release just came out today so there's all these different links that you can click on it and uh it'll take you there well that's great um I can't wait to hear it. And I'm just real, real quick. Give us uh, from your um, from your sound engineer. Give, I, I, I was reading something that he's told you some great Keith stories. Well, the the the, the thing about uh, the the thing about Keith is that everybody tries would try to stand with him you know right drink as much as he drank smoke as much as he smoked and he's ben said you know would be in this in the studio and by you know four or five in the morning everybody's passed out and he would try to like around six it'd be like everybody's snoring or whatever and he'd be like trying to tiptoe over bodies to i, I can get out of here finally and then You'd hear the voice, Keith going, Ben, where are you going? <laughs> but one of, the, one of the stories he said, he goes, he said, he goes, I think the, the, the more he drinks, the, the, the more sense he starts to make because he would be going, like, Oh, Ben, uh, go to that, go to, uh, you know, it's, it's label number 29 and go to the track. It's number 13 on the track. And he goes, he, he was right every time. And he'd be like, he'd be like half standing up and it'd be like, he was, he goes, I don't, I, I don't know how the guy does it. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, listen, Robert, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you had fun. No, it was great. It was great talking to you guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, I can't wait to, can't wait to hear the record. Thanks, yes. Man. January 21st, 21st century rock and roll. Happy early birthday. Yeah. Thank you. And um, hopefully uh, you'll come on again.
Maybe you'll come on after the album's out. We can talk yeah, about great. it. Yeah, great. Anytime. It was a yeah. pleasure. All right. That's great. Great. Chip, you got anything? Uh, uh, just uh, just follow me at Chip Chantry. Um, and uh, yeah, at, at all the social medias. How about you, Ken? Uh, yeah, Ken Krantz Comic. Follow the show, Rock and Roll Pod, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we'll see you next week. Yeah. Take care, everybody.